Good morning, good morning, good morning to you. I sing that to Violet every morning. Good morning, welcome back. It's lovely to see you all. Uh, Shannon has recovered slightly. <laughs> Let me tell you, I got to experience my first uh, travel weekend with her and it looks luxurious online to see her travel, but let me tell you, it is, um, it's a blessing and a curse because it really is exhausting in a lot of ways. Just getting to the airport, driving, getting a Turo, going to, you know, it's just a lot. So um, I was not shocked when she called me and uh, had basically no voice. Uh, but that was an awesome weekend in Manhattan. And then last weekend she was in Texas again. Um, Texas and her have some deep uh, seated weather issues. There's always weather issues when she goes to Texas. So I'm always like, okay, I'm gonna have to, have to rebook your flight. Uh, but she's back and she's recovered kind of and ready to teach for you. Um, I just have a couple announcements. One, just remember not to park under covered parking. It looks like we're doing a good job. Um, and or wherever there are cones, don't pick up the cone to move it so you can park there. Yes, that has happened. You know who you are. I don't think it's happened lately. Um, and then secondly, Life Church is having an event that is super kid friendly. So if you have grandkids or kids um, on March 18th, they're having a dino egg hunt and it's a community event. Yeah, super cool idea. Uh, there's gonna be activities, a bounce house. There's gonna be crafts, the, obviously the dino, hunk, uh, dino hunt. There's a snack tent with coffee and icy treats. And then there's also going to be some dinosaur entertainment. Um, that is on March 18th. So two Saturdays from now, not this Saturday, but the next Saturday uh, from 10 a.m. to noon. And it is uh, Calbrisa Park. And I will be posting this on Shannon's social media, but you can also check it out if you go to Life Church. We're Weston will be on the Instagram on Life Church too. Okay, cool. So it's on Life Church social media if you want to do that as well. So pass that along. It might be a fun uh, opportunity to support this amazing church who lets us host every week here. Um, and it'd be fun for kids. So we have that going on. I think that is all I have for you. So I hope that you enjoy. Um, and I hope that you studied and prepared Matthew 24. And what was the other one? Daniel 19. Nine, not 19. Oh my word, there's not a 19. Daniel, nine. <laughs> oh, good morning. I still sound a little congested, but I'm here. Does this sound weird? No, I'm good. I can't hear either. I think my right ear nearly exploded on the airplane. Um, but talking about weather, okay, first off, you guys, I felt like trash last week. Um, I don't know what happened to me, probably exhaustion, but I just got all that crud. And so, um, and maybe it's because when I went to Kansas, it was so dang cold and the wind was just howling, but that was a really fun weekend. Um, I was able to go to K-State and speak to their athletes about mental health. Um, and that, I, I wasn't expecting how I was going to respond to that. That was hard. So... I have not been in a facility, an athletic facility like that since Zachary. And it really took my breath away. So I had to kind of suck it up and recover. I'm in this facility walking through and all I could think about was him. But I had the opportunity to speak to them about their mental health and um, remind them that um, the only person that can really take care of them is them. And that although they um, experience coaches, I, I don't want to make every coach, I don't want to make them sound wicked or evil because Zachary had some good coaches along the way that I think personally cared about him. But the system does not care about the athlete, to be quite honest with you guys. They're a commodity to be consumed. And so I have a hard time with sports now. It, it's, it's a struggle for me because I just see the business side of it and I see how we worship it and I see how that plays down to how, how the athletes are treated. And so it's very hard. So I was telling them that although Zachary had CTE and a lot of people may not have that 
uh, injury. He had a de degenerative neurological disease because of concussions. He would not have gotten better. And so we dealt with a lot of mental health um, because of that brokenness. And not every athlete will have that. But what I am seeing is that before, before most athletes reach depression or anxiety, there is something called burnout. And they are experiencing that. And that they are the ones that have to see that and, and fight for their, themselves and do something about it. And so I laid out, and really it's very hard to do something about it because in many ways they're trapped um, in a situation to perform um, because they're playing for, um, you know, some D1 school. And I mean, what are you going to do? Just quit, right? And their schedule is unbelievable. And so, but there are little things they can do. Um, they can find something else to enjoy in a small uh, window of time that they have. Here's just one thing. Because I said, remember why you started playing in the first place. It was for fun and enjoyment. And then you realized you were good. And then it was for mastery. Every time you went, you got better and you started to master the skill, but now you've mastered it. And now extreme competition has basically taken that away. And now it's become a business. So find something else that feeds that part of you that loves mastery. So sit in your room and learn to play the guitar and get better or do different things. And so I had the opportunity to kind of talk through different scenarios um, with them, and that was awesome. And then I got to go over to Manhattan Christian College and do their Women's World, and that was a blast. I preached three times, and so it was awesome. But I got back here, and I thought, <laughs> if I come to you guys and then go get on the airplane on Thursday, and I felt like crud, I'm not coming back. I'm not going to make it. So I appreciate you letting me just postpone that. I get to Dallas. It's my birthday weekend last weekend. So Hillary decided she didn't, she wanted to be with me on my birthday. So she was going to go on this trip. And I go, okay, well, what we'll do is we'll meet and I'll run you over to Magnolia Market because you've never been there and you can see it in Waco. She's like, okay. But something about Dallas hates me. Every time I go in there, I have some kind of weather issue. Well, I made it in before the weather, but Hillary and Ben, Ben decided he didn't want to be left out either. So he comes, all the flights were canceled. And then, so I'm like, okay, well, we can't stay in Waco. So I had to change my deal to Dallas. And I thought they're supposed to come in now at 1130 at night. Well, if the gets canceled, then what am I going to do if my hotel's in Waco, right? So I go to Dallas. <laughs> my dad, everywhere I go, watches the weather channel. He is concerned about me because I don't pay attention. And he's like, Shannon, this is bad. Like, where are you going to be? And I go, Dad, I'm at the Renaissance Hotel. I am fine. So I get there. I said, I'm going to wait on Ben and Hillary. Y'all, this thunderstorm comes through. And what he was seeing on the Weather Channel, I was seeing out of the 20th story window. All of a sudden, all of the alarms start going off. There's tornado alarms going. The elevators get shut down. I have to walk down 20 flights of stairs to get down to the bottom. And literally within this last year, of staying in hotels. I've had two fire alarms in the middle of the night where I've had to walk down in my jammies just for the world to see. And I, now I've had a tornado warning. And so I went down into the lobby and we, we rode it out. And then Hillary and Ben landed at 1130 like nothing had ever happened. And we went on. And uh, I endured the weekend with all kinds of mucinex and everything else. And so... It was good. And then I get to come back to Matthew 24 and Daniel 9. I wanted to quit last night, to be quite honest. And these are the areas, I'm going to tell you right now, we're in the spots that keep people from teaching the book of Daniel. We're going to go through Matthew 24. We're going to... Uh, Begin uh, Daniel chapter 9, but I'm going to tell you there are parts in Daniel chapter 9 that are the four most debated verses in all of the Bible. I am not going to get lost in it, so I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not. 
Um, we're going to keep kind of an overall view of that. But I'm, I'm just telling you, I'm going to do my best in these sections to make you understand. And obviously, I'm going to teach it for my bent. And if you read and decide that's not your bent, it's okay. I love what Alistair Begg, I don't know if you ever listen to him. He's a, I enjoy his preaching. And I love what he says that uh, the main things are the plain things. The plain things are the main things. So we agree on the main things. When it comes to salvation and what Jesus has done for us, we're in full agreement on that. But there are some areas people are debating, and I just think, you know what? It's mystery. I'm not sure. So we're going to do our best. So I'm going to start off by playing for you a clip that is four minutes long that I think is a great... Um, segue review because we just came out of Matthew 26 where I talked about the son of man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That's where I was. Um, the parallel passage of Matthew 26 is Mark 14 and N.T. Wright right here is going to talk about the son of man. And when he does this for about four minutes, it is the greatest segue for us to remember what all I taught. And then we're going to open up to Matthew 24. Okay. But let me ask Jesus to join us because, Holy Spirit, we're going to need it. Lord, thank you so much for this morning. I thank you for the privilege, and it is a privilege, to be able to study your word and to teach. And Lord, you know how I stress about it, that I just want to do it in a way that honors you and who you are. I don't ever want to mislead. Um, and so, God, I'm just thankful that the main things are plain, you are the King of kings and Lord of lords. Uh, and if our faith is in you, we win. And Lord, we are all longing for the day that you return um, to make all things right. Full redemption. And so God, I just pray that you would help me teach beyond my capacity, really. And um, that I would even be able to learn from my own mouth today. And so I love you and we give you all praise and glory in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, watch this clip. It seems to me likely that when a priest had his retainers bring Jesus before him, we, we don't know if it was an official trial, a proper court that's very difficult to decide, but when the high priest confronted Jesus, the sequence of thought begins with Jesus' action in the temple. Uh, that's really what has precipitated this whole thing. Jesus has done and said things which make it look as though he thinks the temple is going to be judged by God and demolished. And naturally, for the high priest, the temple's his power base. That, that's where he uh, is what he is. This is pretty devastating stuff. So we've got a head-to-head. The place isn't big enough for both of them. It's either Jesus with his vision that the temple is going to be destroyed as a great act of judgment and he and his movement are going to be vindicated, or it's the high priest sitting here with the temple as his power base and this is how God is operating. And once you've got that picture, the rest of it follows. Because Jesus doesn't answer his question about the temple. And so the high priest cranks the thing up a notch because if Jesus is really pronouncing the doom of the temple, he may just be a wacky prophet, but it's likely that he thinks he's the Messiah because ever since David planned the temple and Solomon built it, it's the Messiah who has authority over the temple. And here we play into a bit of tricky uh, um, Judaism stuff as to whether the chief priest or the king is really the supreme authority. See, there's a bit of that in there as well. So he says, okay, if you're not going to talk about the temple, do you think you're the Messiah? And Jesus says, yes. And he backs it up with a double quotation from Daniel chapter 7 from Psalm 110. Both of those are texts he's already referred to in Mark's Gospel and elsewhere. And texts which, of course, become significant for the early church. Psalm 110 is precisely about a king who is superior to priests. And who ends up sitting at God's right hand. Daniel 7 is about the suffering representative of God's people who after his suffering is vindicated, coming on the clouds, not in a return, but in an upward movement of vindication. Put those together in this dense little saying in, in uh, Mark chapter 14, 
and I suspect that the conversation went on a lot longer between Jesus and Caiaphas, but um, Mark has no doubt shortened it. And this is what you get. You will see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of power, that's Psalm 110, and coming on the clouds of heaven, that's Daniel 7, which is a way of saying, yes, the temple is going to be destroyed, and, you, and that will be part of my vindication. Yes, I am the Messiah, and God will exalt me as such. Yes, I, Jesus, am in the right, and you, Caiaphas, are in the wrong. And that when I am vindicated, and I take that to refer to the resurrection, ascension, destruction of the temple, and ultimately the second coming way off in the future. When I am vindicated, this will be the fulfillment of the prophecy of Daniel about the coming of God's kingdom. You see, Josephus tells us at one point in his writings that uh, many Jews in the middle of the first century AD were relying on a particular prophecy in their scriptures which said that at that time a world ruler would arise from Judea. Now I have argued in my writings that that must be the book of Daniel because that's the only book that has a specific time sequence and we know that they calculated how that was going to pan out from Daniel chapter 9 but also chapters 2 and 7. Jesus I believe is plugging right into that uh, exercise in guesswork and saying, you want to know when it's happening, it's happening in and around me, my movement, my death, my vindication. And that is enough for Caiaphas to say, blasphemy. He thinks that God is vindicating him to his right hand, he thinks he's sharing God's throne, what can this be except blasphemy? That's how I think the trial sequence works, even though I'm quite sure, as I say, that in Mark we've just got a little bit like that, and I suspect it went on a lot longer. Okay. <clears throat> Does that bring you back up to what we talked about in Matthew 26? How many of you don't even remember two weeks ago? <laughs> All right. Well, we're going to continue on in Matthew 24. We're going to look at it, um, because this also is a chapter that I think uh, is highly debated about what it's talking about, and this whole concept of the destruction of the temple and when uh, Jesus will usher in his kingdom. I just want you to know that it was a very hard concept for the disciples. I don't believe they understood that either. We've talked about that even when we discussed the triumphal entry of what they thought the Messiah would be, that they were hoping that um, Jesus would do to the Romans what, Antiochus, uh, what Judas Maccabeus did to the Greeks. And so they have this whole idea. So in Matthew 24, which by the way is before what we've talked about here, Matthew 26, the trial, but I want you to see the concept, how hard it was for the disciples to understand it as well. Plus, I've heard so many sermons preach off of this chapter that I, I think is kind of um, uh, deceiving and it created a lot of fear in me. And I think I told you not too long ago that I got a phone call from my daughter that said, hey, mom, random, what in the world is going on in Matthew 24 when it talks about um, that, oh, pray that, you know, you're not a woman with child, which I can imagine why she's asking me that question, because she's young, right? and wants to start a family someday, and she's wondering, with all the nonsense going on in the world, is this, I mean, that's kind of a scary statement, um, if it is talking about some end-time thing to come, right? It, then that scares her. And so I wanted to go through Matthew 24 and show you that, you know, this concept was very hard for the disciples. So let's look at it. I'm going to do my best. Um, We're going to actually start by looking at Matthew 23, verse 37, because I think we need to keep this chapter in context with uh, what is actually going on. I think it's a natural sequence of events. Okay, So remember, Jesus has been in the temple, and there's been all kinds of confrontations of, uh, of who, it, who actually has the power over the temple over this place. But look at verse 37. 2337. Jesus says, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. See, 
your house is left to you desolate. For I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Until you see my triumphal entry, my true triumphal entry. And so he is talking about, right, um, the temple being desolate. Verse 24, Jesus left the temple and was going away when the disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. So they're walking out. All of this has been taking place in the temple. They are walking out through the temple. And I wish I had pictures up here of that temple. I mean, it was marvelous. The structure of that temple and the buildings of the temple all around were, were marvelous. And so somehow they have drawn their attention to the buildings of the temple and they're having conversations about it. But Jesus answers them and says this, you see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And so all of this conversation that they've seen, the debating, all the woes, all that that's been happening in the temple, they are leaving. Jesus is grieving over his people. Oh, how I long to gather you, but you would not allow me. And he says, your temple remains desolate. And then he goes on and says, you will not see me again until my true triumphal entry. They leave the temple. The disciples are looking back at the buildings. And he then in that conversation says, you see these? Not one stone will be left on another. Some exaggeration, but what is he talking about? It will be utterly destroyed. Not only the temple, but Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And he tells them that. That is the context of this next part. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, <clears throat> when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? All right, so if you keep that in context, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be? What things? The destruction of the temple. Right? It, I mean, isn't that what you would come... He has just told you that the very foundation, the place where heaven and earth overlap, the very place where all of your religion depends on, the power seat, is going to be destroyed. The city of Jerusalem and the temple is going to be destroyed. And they then go sit down on the Mount of Olives together. What do you think they've been thinking about the entire way to the Mount of Olives? That, right? And is this the first time they've heard of this? No, right? Back in John 2, remember, when Jesus uh, clears out the temple and they say, what gives you authority, right? Because what did you just hear in that clip? They believe the only one with authority over the temple would be who? The Messiah, okay? And so then they're, they're like, who do you think you are? What gives you authority, to cleanse this temple. What sign will you give us, he says, they say. And what does he say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise. So this has been going on. And so now they sit down with him and they ask him questions. Okay, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? How many questions are there? I think there are really two questions right there. Although in their mind, they're so tied together, they may consider it one. Because for them, the destruction of the temple, okay, and the co his coming, basically they are saying, when will these things happen that you're telling us about? The destruction of a temple, and when will you usher in your kingdom to set up to make all things right? Is basically what they're asking. But it's basically two questions. When will these things happen? The destruction of the temple. And Jesus answers them. And which one do you think he's going to answer? I think he's going to answer the first one first. Don't you? And so he goes on and Jesus answers them. 
See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death, and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another, and many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Now, what question is he answering still? And let me show you why I think that, okay? Let me just skip ahead. Look at, I believe he's answering the first question from um, verse 4 all the way to 35, okay? I want you to look at verse 34 really quick. What does he say right there in verse 34? Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until these things take place. I wanted to show you that first. How long is a generation? It's about 40 years. From this point, like 37 years later, the temple's destroyed. Okay? So, if he, the things that he is describing, if they're going to happen before this generation passes away, if you're talking about something in the, distant, in, in the far future, the second coming of Christ, was he wrong? And what do you think they thought he meant when he said it? That's even more important. Because remember, he's having this conversation with his disciples. So either Jesus thinks something and he's wrong, okay? Or he is telling them that within an actual generation, all that he is about to describe is going to happen. And they fully understand it as a generation. So, this, so I want to show you this before now I go back and look at it. And so he is basically telling them that, listen, I'm going to tell you some things in advance so that you don't get led astray, all right? Because the destruction of this temple is coming, but until then, look at the things you're going to see. Others will come after me claiming to be the Christ. And what does that mean to them right now? Christ. Some kind of political leader that is going to usher in um, an empire to bring uh, Jewish independence. Other people are going to show up claiming to be that, claiming to be that leader. And it goes on to say that people are going to follow them. And in this period of time, there are going to be wars and rumors of war. So in other words, it's as if after me, nothing has changed, really. There's going to continue to be wars and rumors of wars. The beasts are still going to be rolling. Don't be afraid, he says, because this is all within my plan for the end. Wars will continue. There will be famine and hardship, earthquakes, natural disasters, which reminds me of Romans 8, which talks about the earth groaning, waiting for the day it's freed from the curse of decay. And he is saying in this, uh, all of this time, all this is, is birth pains, right? What is a birth pain? It's pains that come along, right? Because what? Something is growing. Some new life is coming. And these are the natural pains that come along with that while that grows, right? Is that during all of this stuff that you're going to experience, keep in mind, Focus in on what is truly happening. That the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is actually growing. This is the natural rhythm of birth. It's going to lead to new life. But before that delivery ever comes, he says to them that they will be delivered up to tribulation and that you will be put to death 
and you will be hated by all the nations for my name's sake. We see this happening in the book of Acts, do we not? The fact that the gospel of the kingdom will be preached throughout the nations and that there will be all kinds of persecution because what are they saying? They're saying that the king has come and that the king was Jesus. And they're preaching a new covenant, um, a covenant in his blood to be a citizen of a heavenly kingdom. That is what they're preaching. And he says, and as this time goes, there are going to be those that fall away. There's going to be divisions. I mean, think about it. In all of this, after Jesus, all of these things keep coming and over time, and it seems like nothing has changed. So people are going to start to uh, question why Jesus came and was this true and what really happened. And they're going to, uh, I think they're going to be pulled into the politics of their day. Why? Because lawlessness is going to continue, it says. Things are going to get worse. And complacency is going to set in. But he says this, but the one who endures, in verse 13, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. And the gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole earth as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When you look at this period, it's like he, he backs up and he tells them some things overall that they need to know. You need to know, it's going to seem like things just kept going on as normal. You're going to see wars and rumors of war. You're going to see dissension. You're going to still see brokenness that is going to happen. You're going to still see people stepping up, claiming to be the Christ as if I were not. You are going to see that basically Jerusalem is still going to be on a collision course with, with Rome. But I'm telling you all these things in advance so that you don't get led astray. You don't become complacent because the one who endures to the end will be saved. He doesn't want them to be led astray. So overall, but let me ask you something. In him telling this to the disciples, doesn't this relate to every generation? I mean, it relates to my grandparents' generation, my parents' generation, my generation, right? He is saying, this is what the eye sees. But what does apocalypse mean? To pull back the veil. He's telling them in advance, do not let this um, make you complacent. Do not let this uh, make you fall away. Um, just know he who endures to the end will be saved. Okay, so it is very uh, general, but he wants them to know what atmosphere they're going to continue to see within that generation. And by the way, our generation. But then here's the next part that I want you to see. But in 15, he gets specific. Okay? So he says this, so when you see, who? The disciples. It's who he's talking to, right? Although we can relate to their generation, he's describing their generation, that these are the things that they can see. And although those overall things still apply to us, now he's getting specific with them. And he's being basically a shepherd to his disciples, in my opinion. And he says, so when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by the prophet Daniel, Standing in the holy place. And then I love that it says, let the reader understand. Okay, I'm not exactly sure what that means. But I, I think it means, I think Matthew is putting in there, man, you really need to go back and do your homework so that you can understand what I am telling these disciples. Because they know what I'm saying. Because he is telling them when they see a specific thing, that is referenced in the book of Daniel. Now, remind me, what is the abomination of desolation? Do you remember Antiochus Epiphanes, the madman? Do you remember what he did and the fact that he came in and he uh, completely desolated the temple? 
He erected the statue of Zeus. He offered a pig on the altar. Um, all that he did. Do you remember what it was called? The abomination of desolation. So he is telling his disciples, listen, this is going to be the atmosphere of your generation. But now I want to be specific because I want you to know something. When you see specifically the abomination of desolation as in Daniel happening in the temple. So when you see the kind of thing that happened in Daniel and they're going to see that um, under Titus when the temple is going to be destroyed. Okay, they're going to come in and absolutely decimate the temple. When you see that. It says, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Now, if this was a futuristic, if this was like a global warning of the end times, why is it referring to the people in Judea? Fleeing to the mountains. If this is a universal catastrophe that we're looking, what mountain could we flee to? Right? So let's keep it in context and remember the question they are asking Jesus. Okay? When will these things happen? What things? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. That's what they're asking about. So this is the question. So now he's saying, in general, you're going to see this. I want you to know all these things before so that you are not led astray. You don't go off and follow some other Christ. You don't get complacent. Y'all don't divide. You stay on task. I'm telling you, this is the environment of that generation. But I want to tell you something specific, though. When you see the abomination of desolation uh, spoken of by the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let the one who is on the housetop not go down to take what is in his house. And let the one who is in the field not turn back to take his cloak. And alas, for women who are pregnant and for those who are nursing infants in those days, pray that your flight may not be in winter or on a Sabbath, for then there will be a great tribulation." Such that has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no and never will be. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. Wow. So what is he saying? When you see this specific thing happen, run, Forrest. That's what he's saying. Get out. Don't go back because it's happening. And then he says, and you are going to see a great tribulation. Now, do you remember the word hyperbole that I taught you about a way to speak an exaggeration saying, this is bad. It's about to get bad. Do you remember? Let me remind you of the definition. Hyperbole is a deliberate exaggeration of language to draw attention to an event or a set of circumstances for emphasis Stretching the literal truth for the sake of emotional impact. We talked about that. I'm telling you what, that was the best man I have ever seen in my life. Right? Was he the best man? What am I just trying to tell you? He was fine. That's what I'm trying to tell you. Be still my heart. Right? Or... That was the that fish was the biggest thing you have ever. Okay, you understand what I'm saying? That kind of why can't they speak like that? Really? See, you know what I'm saying is not literal. That I am describing something to you. It just means it was dang big or he was really hot, right? I mean that was that's the gist. Let me give you some uh, thoughts out of the <laughs> out of the Bible. Deuteronomy one twenty eight. The cities are large and fortified to heaven. Were they actually fortified to heaven? Judges 7.12. Now the Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east were lying in the valley as numerous as locusts. And their camels were without number, as numerous as the sand of the seashore. Are you for real? You think they had enough camels as the sand of the seashore? Psalm 6, 6, I am weary with my sighing. Every night I make my bed swim. I flood my couch with my tears. Come on, right? 
This is Professor Proverbs' favorite one. He's sitting in the back corner listening to me. Matthew 23, 24, you blind guides, you strain out a gnat and swallow a camel. All right. This also happens, right, when it's describing judgments brought on by the nations by God. Okay. Brought on nations by God. Uh, I'll give you some examples. Exodus 10, 14. There had never been so many locusts, nor would there be so many again. Really? We'll compare that with Joel 1, 1 through 4. How about Exodus eleven six? There shall be a great cry in all of the land of Egypt, such as there has not been before, and such as shall never be again. How can that be true and this be true at the same time? Ezekiel 5, 9. And because of all your abominations, I will do among you what I have not done and the like of which I will never do again. Aren't those same words in Matthew 24? The likes of which you will never see again. Daniel 9, 12, we're going to see. For under the whole heaven, there has not been done anything like what was done to Jerusalem. Okay, we'll compare that with 12, 1. When it talks about another, are you seeing what I'm saying? So the bottom line here is that he is using the same hyperbole used of the prophets. And he is basically saying that when you see this certain thing occur in the temple, run forest, because it is going to get really bad, really bad. Verse 25, let's go there. Oh no, let's 23. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe it, right? Do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand. So he is telling them everything that is about to happen. He's telling them the overall feel of the generation of how it's just going to continue on with wars and rumors of wars and uh, earthquakes, natural disasters, and that lawlessness will continue. So don't follow, don't be deceived and don't get complacent. And then he says, and let me tell you something specific. When you see this happening in the temple, you run for us because it's about to get really bad. And when it does, when all of this is destroyed, there are going to be people that rise up and say that they are the Christ or they are a new prophet and that they have the answers. And listen, if you hear that they're in the wilderness, don't go out there. If you hear that they're in some private room, don't go there. Do not believe it, he says. Verse 27, for as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. In Hoffpower version to me, he's saying, trust me, when it's time, you won't miss it. You can count on it. You can count on it as much as a vulture finding a dead body, a dead carcass. He says, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. What is that kind of language? It's apocalyptic literature. Have I shown you enough examples of that? We went back to the prophets how many times? Um, Isaiah 13 is a great one to look at about that. When you, when basically what it is saying is that when this happens to the Jewish people, when Jerusalem is destroyed and the temple is destroyed, in other words, their whole world, what? Just fell apart. It is that catastrophic that the world of the Jew would never be the same. That's what it's saying. Then will appear in the heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. What does that mean? Coming on the clouds. Judgment, right? Judgment. What is this referring to? Because what is the question? 
When will these things happen? What things? The destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And what is he saying? He is saying, this is the judgment that you will see. Right? Isn't that what he's been saying all along? Destroy this temple and I will raise it up again in three days. He is prophesying the destruction of the temple. Jesus raised up in three days. He was exalted to the right hand of power. He is the temple. But this is all about the destruction of the temple. And then it says, and he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. So in other words, to me, and I'm going to open it up at the end to a couple of guys in the corner to see if they want to rebut me. Because <laughs> I don't want to teach you wrong. But to me, it is saying that as this happens, right, the temple will be destroyed. Jesus is the temple. And God is going to gather his people to himself. Do you remember what N.T. Wright was, said? says, there, there's a debate, right? Who's right, Caiaphas or Jesus? And in this sense, he is saying, yes, I am the Christ, and you will see me exalted to the right hand of power, and you will see me vindicated in the destruction of the temple. And this is what he is talking about. And so he goes on to say, from the fig tree... From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know that summer is near. So also, when you see all these things happen, you know that... Now see, this is the part that makes you crazy. You know that he is near at the very gates. It can also say it. I'm not even going to go there with you. So that it is here at the very gate. So when you see all that I'm telling you, just know it, or maybe it's Titus, but it is here at the gate. Truly, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. And then he says, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Okay? So I think... When they ask the question, when will these things happen, that they are specifically asking about the destruction of the temple. When will this happen? Now they think that all of this will happen at once, in my opinion, that they are asking, when will Jesus come in and take his kingdom and make all things right? But he's going to, we know that there's a gap in between those two things, right? So he's going to answer their second question, though. Whether or not they thought it was two questions, it's two questions. And so he then goes on to answer that second question. Look at it. But concerning that day and hour, when heaven and earth pass away, my word will not pass away. But concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Not even the angels of heaven, nor the sun. Because what are we talking about here? When the king comes in with his kingdom, ushering in his kingdom and restoring all things. No one knows, but the father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the son of man. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving a marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the son of man. Now, I'm just going to point, listen, I'm not, write this in pencil. This is just uh, my thought when I read this. If it's like the days of Noah, okay, who went away and who remained? So Noah and his family, the faithful, they remained, correct? Okay, who was swept away? Who was taken away? The unrighteous, the ones who did not believe. That, that's just the way I see it. Okay, so if, if you see, if it's in the days of Noah, are y'all disagreeing with me in the corner back there? Oh no, did I get a thumbs up? Woo, okay. See, I always want people watching over me. Are you coming up here, David Rubelidge? You just stood up. Okay, because I don't want to, I want to be, 
taught and corrected. I just want you to know this because this is hard stuff. And so, but to me, I have been reading the rest of this backwards my entire life. It's been taught to me backwards. So if the faithful remained and the unfaithful were taken away in the days of Noah, keep that in mind now and let me read the rest. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be what? Left. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Who then is the faithful and wise servant? whom his master has set over his household to give them their food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find so doing when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. And it goes on. I just want you to get this gist because I'm not teaching Matthew completely. But what if it is not what you thought? What if when we're talking about the coming of the Son of Man, that the king is coming in, the second coming, to set up his throne and make all things new? And what if it is the faithful who remain with him, and it is the unfaithful that are taken away? What if this is not in the context of some secret rapture, where God has two different uh, distinct groups of people still somehow, And he still has two different plans for their ultimate salvation, which I can't buy. Because I believe when he said it was finished, it was complete. It is finished. And what if we have been going at this with the eyes of dispensationalism and reading that into the scripture? I'm just saying, what if? And so I... How do I want to end that? (laughs) That's just how I'm going to end. No, I'm going to look at one more thing. Okay, look at verse. I just want to show you in Matthew. Look Look at chapter 25. So in that context. Because... He's telling us, he's telling his disciples this in advance for a reason. And it's not to make them afraid. It's not to make them look at all the different things that are happening like some timeline, right? What he is basically telling them is this. This is going to be the atmosphere you see continue. And I don't want you to be deceived by it. I don't want you to be complacent. I don't want it to cause division. I want to tell you in advance. I also want to tell you that when you see this certain thing, you need to get out because it's going to get real bad. But all of this must take place for the end to come because the kingdom of heaven will be growing in the middle of all this. One day I will come back as the king and I will set up my throne and I will make all things new. The king will come back and we will be raptured to meet him, but we are returning to the earth for his rule. You don't know when that is going to happen, he says. So your job is to do what? Endure and remain faithful and to continue to preach the kingdom. He, look, at, look at the next stories. To me, it makes so much sense. The parable of the ten virgins. What is the point of that? Be ready. Right? What is the next part? The parable of the talents. So while you're watching and waiting on the Lord, what are we called to do? Use our talent to grow the kingdom of God, right? And then I love where it says the final judgment, verse 32, before him will be gathered all the nations 
And he will separate people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. And he will place the sheep on his right and the goat on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, come, you who are blessed by my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. But this is the part that gets me. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. I was naked and you clothed me. I don't know why this makes me cry. I was sick and you visited me and I was in prison and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you a drink? And when did you see you as a, when did we see you as a stranger and welcome you or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least, my brothers, you did it to me. When he is talking about his people, do you see the description? This has nothing to do with legalism. This has to do with the fact that if we are a part of the kingdom of God, what does the kingdom of God look like? And we've talked about this before. He brought the kingdom to the people that nobody would ever bring a kingdom to. He offered it first to the poor in spirit. Those who hungered and thirsted after right relationship with God, with people. But they saw all around the world that we aren't in right relationship. Everything's broken. And so what did they do? They mourned. They mourned over it. Broke their heart. And they felt so helpless to do anything about it. Why? They have the sword, but they're supposed to keep it in the sheath. Be meek. How many times have I looked out in this broken world and I think, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do about it. Because there seems to be only two things I want to do. Either if I think there's nothing I can do about it, so I become, I want to isolate and move away. Or I want to grab the sword and just start swinging. Those are my two go-tos. You feel so helpless. But what does he say? I'll tell you what to do. Show mercy. Be people of mercy. Be people of pure heart. Guard your pride. We're going to see. Daniel was not a man of pride. He was a man of humility. When we start chapter 9, we're going to see his prayer. It's unbelievable, his prayer of repentance. What did Daniel have to repent of? But man, you see this repentance. He knows who he is. Keep a pure heart. Be peacemakers. We talked about that. If you're a peacemaker, you're bringing peace between two parties, and they're going to turn around and shoot you. I, I deal with that. They're going to turn around and shoot you. But you still be a peacemaker. And when you live like this, you're going to be persecuted because Jesus was, and this is how he lived. But I find it so interesting. He did not get a, a list of do's and don'ts of what his people look like. It was this kind of lifestyle. These are my people. This is what they look like. And so we're about to enter into chapter 9 next week, and, and we're going to look at Daniel's prayer. And what's so interesting to me is I've heard more sermons in my life over the four debated verses about the 70 weeks than I have ever heard over the prayer, which to me is ugh, the most beautiful part of it all is his prayer. And so I hope some of this has helped you. Um, especially with the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power, coming on the clouds in judgment, what Jesus was telling uh, Caiaphas, what Jesus was telling his disciples as to what um, the fact that what Jesus' death and resurrection, how it exalted him to the throne and how he was vindicated uh, by the destruction of the temple and will ultimately be vindicated in the second coming. But between there... We are in this time that is the growth of the kingdom. That's what we should be focused on, is during all this nonsense. Don't, don't forget, the kingdom of heaven is growing. 
right? Okay, now, you two in the back. Come give us your thoughts for two minutes. Or one minute. You got one minute. Just give us two things that you thought, because I know you did. If you need to leave, it's okay. Time's up. But if you want to stay, feel free. These are my friends. David Rubelid is an associate pastor here. Uh, he's brilliant. And if you've been around me long enough, you know Brian Glubish, who I call Professor Proverb. And uh, he's one of my mentors. So just give us just a thought. Is that on, Weston? Unmute it. Thank you. Wait till my wife finds out that I'm up here. Um, I hope you weren't shocked that she stole that rapture passage from you about uh, Larry Norman's I Wish We'd All Been Ready. Anybody remember that song? But uh, I think that's the appropriate interpretation. Anyways, I want to say this. She's talked about apocalyptic literature. I don't know what she taught you. I hope she did it right in previous times. But the whole point of all this fearsome type detail that we see in Matthew chapter 24 and elsewhere, it's all to make a point that God is still in control. So when you see stuff falling apart, it's not because God has lost control. That stuff was written to encourage, not to inspire fear. And so all this stuff, wars and rumors of war, we, you know, nowadays we start to count how many battles there are thinking that now is, it's being fulfilled. No, it was always happening, as it was in the days of Noah where people were living normally, so it is now. So anyways, we're to take great encouragement. God is in control. David. Yes. I got a couple, actually. I'll make, try and make real quick. Okay. okay. Is that okay? Yeah. All right. So uh, if you have chance, read, I would say, Luke 17 through 20, because it, it, it kind of mirrors that. Uh, chapter 17 specifically has a similar conversation, but the disciples ask, where will they be taken? Mm-hmm. And this is something worth looking at, and it says, where birds gather. And so it's saying that the people who will be taken will be taken where there's death. Now, um, uh, a couple things, and I, th- I believe it's chapter 20, 20. Are you talking about in reference to, and one remains and one yes, is taken away? Yes, Okay. Yes, that's exactly. And so just take a look at that conversation in Luke 17 um, for you. And then uh, 19, during the triumphal entry, Jesus' posture, he cries. He weeps over Jerusalem. He says, I wish you would have known what would have brought you peace. And then he foretells in that moment that Jerusalem will be attacked. And then the very next chapter, it's all that cosmic uh, prophetic language that's listed there. And in verse 21, when it says flee to the hills, I want to tell you, because I'm a huge history nerd, like a huge history nerd, that in 70 AD when this actually happened. Uh, they came, uh, there's a whole bunch of stories. Uh, ben Hinnom is a part of that, which is, uh, anyway, that's a whole other story. Uh, but um, what is uh, the, the um, what's that military outpost? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, um, well, Masada? Yeah, they came from the military outposts and pushed on Jerusalem. What we see in uh, in history is the followers of Jesus actually fled. Yes, and it was the the Jewish people that stayed and fought and, and died. And so we actually see in history that what was told of them to do to flee for the mountains that they actually did in history. So I just wanted to mention that That's as well. Awesome. So, yeah. Okay, so I think we give you enough. To at least know this. You don't know very much, do you? (laughs) So do you ever now go back and think of some of the conversations you had with people and you think, dang, we were sitting there talking. We didn't have a clue. Okay, so I just think it's so cool to, um, I think I grew up with such fear, and I I don't know if y'all did, but such fear to to question certain things um, for fear that I was listening to the tickling of ears or I was going to become a heretic or to view something in a different way. And I don't like it also when some of the people in a different camp are always referred to with the word liberal. Because for me, I grew up, (laughs) I grew up where the word liberal was a very negative word. And if you're into politics, you may think liberal is a very negative word, okay? And so I do not believe we should be afraid 
to research and to really look into other camps because I would say that the majority of pastors that I had growing up were great men with great intentions and they hadn't spent enough time in it either. And so I just don't want you to be afraid to explore and to read and to see if actually what you think is true, like read someone else's take on it. And it, we should not be afraid of that because in the end, people, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have everlasting life. That's the main thing is the plain thing right? Lord, thank you so much for today. I thank you for your word. It is marvelous. Um, You are even more marvelous, but I thank you for each word written down. I thank you that you tell us all the time throughout your Bible to consider it, consider it, consider it, and that you will give us understanding. And, And I thank you, God, that I've come to the place where I can sit in the mystery and trust you for the mystery. Um, We sure love you. And I pray that you are glorified through this Bible study and our conversation. And uh, we just love you. But most of all, God, may we be people of your kingdom when we walk out of here. May we be people of mercy and peace and pure heart, because those are the attributes of the citizens of your kingdom. I sure love you. In Jesus' name, amen.